Hey listeners, it's Keith from Evertrue. Evertrue is the end-to-end solution for insight, outreach, and analytics for higher ed advancement and stewardship teams around the world. Recently, we launched Evertrue Studios, Advancement's very first media hub, where subscribers have access to over 100 hours of free, on-demand original series and podcasts, all created with fundraisers in mind. Check us out at evertrue.com backslash studios. Aaron. And I'm David. And this is Talking Shop. And today we're going to talk about culture of philanthropy. This is a, a buzz term that we all use. Many of us in, in, <laughs> in sentence, I work at a place that does not have a strong culture of philanthropy. I sometimes wonder if anyone thinks they do work in a place with a, a strong enough culture of philanthropy, but that's just that's just a little amusement on my part. I really do feel like it can be a struggle for a lot of us to educate our colleagues and partners on what the value is of supporting the cause and basically what it is that philanthropy does to elevate higher education. Yeah, and I would say cultural philanthropy, when I hear that term, I think of it in two ways. There's the internal stakeholders, which are the, you know, the faculty and the administrators at your university, if you're in higher ed, um, or the people who work at your organization, if you're at a, you know, another type of, you know, nonprofit. And then there are the donors. Right. And for a fundraiser, I think about culture philanthropy. My first reaction is not as much, interestingly, about Internal. the faculty and the administrators at the university. It's about how we like, how many of our alumni are already giving back to the university? Oh, yes. And so I, you know, and I'm in a place where our participation rate is hovering around between 29 and 30%, you know, annually. But I've been at institutions where the participation rate, which is the, if you don't know this, I'm sure you do, but the number of alum, undergraduate in particular, but undergraduate alumni who give back to the institution is your participation rate. And that matters only because U.S. News and World Report rankings Factor that in as one part of their ranking. Which is so, a whole other episode. <laughs> for another podcast. Right. <laughs> <laughs> um, but so participation, if you're at 30%, that means 30% of your undergraduate alumni are giving to you regularly. Maybe That's not good. every, maybe not, maybe, you know, some people come in and out every year and there may not be the retention you want, but that's a fairly high participation rate. Right. I've been at places as low as 4 or 5%. Mm-hmm. And that means that most of the prospective donors with whom you're speaking have never given to you. Right. And so when you're at a place where like Northwestern where I am, most of the donors or prospective donors that I'm engaging or trying to, you know, make ask to make a gift, they've been giving already. So yeah. they've already been doing they have a habit of giving. I'm just asking them to give a much bigger amount. Right. At places like DePaul or, you know, at University of Denver, or other places where I've worked, the the culture of philanthropy is so much different. And I was cold calling Right. I would go in a call. I would go, I would buy myself a really expensive coffee at Starbucks downstairs <laughs> and go into a call room and sit and make calls for an hour. And most of the time get no response, get hung up on or get told, I don't have any interest in meeting with you. Right. And that made me a better fundraiser, but it also means that when we talk about culture philanthropy, it's, it's a co- combination of things. Both the institution and its prospective donors are not comfortable or familiar with 
you know, lot of giving. And so building that among both constituents is extremely hard. It is extremely hard. And yes, I, I went to a, I, my alma mater had a really, I, I believe still has, I haven't checked recently, but I, I believe they have a high alumni participation rate. And I remember that being impressed upon us from day one. I mean, literally the first day that I arrived on campus, I remember part of my orientation was being sat in a room and told you're here because of a lot of alumni who made a lot of gifts, right? And so that's when we talk about a culture of philanthropy, that's a huge part of it. But I think that starts with the internal stakeholders, mm. right? You have to have people, because those aren't conversations that are happening with development officers. Those are conversations that are happening with student affairs people, right? These are people who don't work for a living as fundraisers, but it's so ingrained in the culture that everyone can speak to why the matter is important and how we all uplift one another. Yeah, and I, I will say it, when you work at an institution and there's not a, a a really deep understanding of the work that we do, there are many people who look down on your work, even in places where you have a great tradition and a great culture of philanthropy. There are many people who look down on the work that we do. Oh, yeah. And they will often think that, you know, we are glorified salespeople. We, all we do is schmooze. We go to schmooze. cocktail parties. Yes. But can we talk about the word schmooze and how insulting that is to fundraisers? First of all, if, if people think that that's what fundraisers do, I mean, that, that would be the worst way to approach fundraising because it's not about you and it's not about flattering people or, you know, the, the idea that people are, you know, you get treated like you're picking pockets or something. Well, and I think it's, it also, that notion gets, um, get people buy into that notion who are getting into the business and people who are high, highly extroverted. And I'm pretty highly extroverted, but they will, they think that that is a major part of the job. Ironically, my least favorite part of any job is going to cocktail parties and big dinners. I am so much more interested in sitting one on one with a donor. Yes. And that is not schmoozing. That is building trust. And to, to use a phrase that my, my mentor, who happens to be my dad, who was a fundraiser after being a professor for years, um, he says, you have to earn the right to ask for a gift. And that means you're really spending time with an individual, trying to learn about their passions and connecting those dots between their passions and our mission in a meaningful way. Yep. That's not schmoozing. And you yep. can, you, it is helpful though to be able to meet someone at a cocktail party or a dinner or some other event and let them be memorable enough that they want to contact you and spend time with you. I'm sure that's a part of the job. And there are people who are good at that and people who are less good at that. But it, but schmoozing is not what this job is about. But a lot of people yes. in, the, in academia think that is what it is about. Oh, yes. <clears throat> I, I, I totally agree. And I want to say to all of the fundraisers who are listening to this, um, just as a little um, morale boost, what you do is, is more than that. And it is so important. And I, I genuinely believe, I genuinely believe, or I wouldn't be in this business that it is as much a kindness to the donor as it is to the beneficiary. I really believe that, that people actually, and there's been study after study of this, people enjoy making gifts. People feel better when they help other people. And so, you know, 
people always hear about all of these problems in the world and they want to know what to do. And, you know, you walk in and say, I represent this institution that helped educate you and is doing this extraordinary research in these things. And, you know, you can make an impact. Literally, you can make an impact on the world. You can make an impact on um, scientific discovery, or you can help make an impact on families by helping them um, get their kid through college. Agreed. And I think, I think one of the things we do a really poor job of in our business is educating the rest of our institutions about how we function. And I'll give you an example. You know, I've, I've met any number of deans over my 29, nearly 30 year career who believe that fundraisers are completely interchangeable mm. and that our mm-hmm. work and that like we're, what we do is we're, we're just essentially used car salesmen. Um, and they're like, well, there's no talent to this work. Right. And it's I would sales. say, yeah. And I would say, yeah. you know, maybe it is sales of a sort. Maybe it's sales of an intangible, but some people have a real talent at this and some people have less talent. Yeah. And the only way, the best way to ex- exemplify that is to actually just look at their data and say, look, I've got people on my team who are extraordinarily gifted at engaging donors, managing multiple proposals at a time and thinking about 40, 40 prospective donors all at once and moving all of them along. And the donors love these individuals on top of it because they are trustworthy, yeah. they are smart, they listen well. Yeah. There's a real talent to this business and it drives me crazy when I hear people basically looking at our work saying there's no talent necessary. You just got to put a body in that position to do it. And I think yeah. I think that goes to the lack of of education that we've done and informing our campus partners about the work that we do. And I th- I think it's pervasive that we don't really do a good job about informing them. And you know, we work in higher ed, right? So the thing that's funny to me is that advancement or development in alumni relations, we are a field that is rife with data and numbers, incredible amounts of data. Right. We work at institutions with faculty members who are extraordinarily gifted at understanding and managing large reams of data. Do we ever, A, ask them to help us understand it, much less do we ever articulate what we're doing and share the information we have with them? All they ever see is we raised X amount last year, we think we can raise Y amount this year, and that's pretty much it. Right. And we don't, we don't educate them to how this process works. Yes, we, and we work with academic leaders and deans and others engaging individual donors on a one-on-one basis. They generally, if they've been around a while, they get that process, but they don't understand how our office works. They don't understand how we are supported as fundraisers by a really talented group of operations people, advancement services teams, prospect researchers, how the engagement continuum begins from the alumni relations to the annual giving to the major gifts to the principal gifts to the gift planning team. All of this stuff that is one big incredible operation, how it all fits together nicely. And I think it is a disservice both to our staff members and our team, um, but it is also not helping the, the institution in, in almost every place I've seen and observed, 
really fully understand the value of the organization that that we're a part of, meaning the the fundraising team, to to really help uh, you know be a be a true partner in this. You know, when I was a little kid, um, it used to irritate me to no end <laughs> that my mother, who basically was a saint, <laughs> would tell me if I was ever really upset or depressed or, you know, despondent about something, she would always say, let me tell you how to make yourself feel better. Go make somebody else feel good. Yeah. It, she would always, and it bothered me because, you know, I didn't really take that to heart until I got older. And then I realized, you know what, that is literally the best way to boost your mood is to make somebody else's day Right. Sure. And so when, when you do something that enables somebody else to feel good, um, it is, it is a gift to them. And I'll tell you something. There's a lot of people who just feel a little adrift right now. There's a lot of problems in our society and people don't know kind of where to turn or what to do about them. And I don't know if I'm speaking just personally, but I think a lot of us just kind of generally feel a, a lot of guilt about, you know, global warming or, you know, whatever, all of these problems. And to have somebody come to you and say, here's something that you can do. Mm-hmm. Here's the impact it will have and come back to you and say, here's what you did. Here's the impact it had. I mean, that is, that is something that will make you happy for the rest of your life. Completely, completely. And I think I think, well, you know, occasionally you and I both have witnessed this, I know, probably together at some times, where people look at the fundraising operation and they will say negative things about the team or they will you know, right. dismiss the importance of it or they will say rude things. And I, and it's more pervasive than I ever would have imagined when I first started doing this. Um, and it's not only ignorance. But it, 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 it also is, is rude at times. And I think, I think they believe that we're getting, we're on a commission basis like a sales team. Like we're not, we're not selling cars and getting X percent of the car that we sold. Nobody in any organization that I've worked in has ever got a commission based on how much they raise in any way whatsoever. And I would resist that till I'm out of the business. Right. Because it, it, it creates perverse incentives. That are inappropriate, in my opinion, because that's not where we work. It's not how we do our business, and I love that about our work. Yeah, and I think they don't understand that. No, and you know, I was talking earlier about sales. Let me just say that um, my career trajectory. I work at Evertrue now. Prior to that, in between higher ed and this, I worked for I I work for myself and my partners. We formed a company. And we were going for several years and I'm going to compliment myself. I'm, I was really good at sales. I was really good at sales. And I would tell people when they asked me about it, did you, you know, are you surprised that you're so good at, at closing this stuff? I would say, here's my secret. I don't have a secret. I just believe so much in the people I work with and our ability to deliver on the promise of what we're talking about. I am literally just telling people how we will help them. And that is an earnestness that you cannot manufacture, right? 
And it's true so much more in philanthropy. You cannot, you know, people who think it is about tricking people or schmoozing them or kind of greasing the wheels and kind of putting a blur on what is actually happening at the institution, you know, creating a slush fund, so to speak. That is, that is nonsense. And it is so important that people really recognize the, the importance of the belief in the cause that the fundraisers have. That's right. Well, that, I think that's why, I mean, if, if you were successful and I believe you were, um, highly successful in some ways, I think it's because, you know, you were supporting and working with really talented fundraisers who were doing this because what we do is we believe in what we're trying to, to, to raise money for. Right. And if you're not good at that, you're not going to be good at your job. And by the way, if you tell a donor that, that X is going to happen and it doesn't happen, they're not likely to make another gift. Right. So you have to be authentic and you have to be honest. And that's what I love about this work. And that's why people who have been in their jobs for many years, we've done analysis on this, are fun, like fundraisers who are in their jobs for, you know, at Northwestern, you know, the first year you raise X amount of gifts, Y amount of dollars. It grows in every case. And over 10 years, that goes to, you know, from, from an average of two gifts at $100,000 per piece in year one to an average of around eight gifts and the median gift size is around 800 to a million by 10 years. And so you're, 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 the number of gifts you're, you're raising grows and the size of the gifts grows because you're working with people who have made gifts before and it's repeat right. business. And that, that speaks to the, the values that our fundraising staff has. The people who are really good are good because they've developed trust with donors. And the donors, we, we tell our donors when things go well, and we tell them when they don't go well. And that right. honesty and that trust is hugely important. That's part of creating a culture of philanthropy, exactly. is being honest when things don't go well. Yeah. And, but it's also, it's also creating excitement about your mission. And it's, so it's not about a sales in a, in a, in a, in a schmoozy way, to use your point. But it is about really connecting the dots in a way that is going to be meaningful to donors who want to do something important. And that's why I love this business. I do too. Yeah, exactly. And I'll tell you something. When I, we, you know, we, we're, we're on a podcast. I don't know if you know, but we have a podcast. Is that what this is? <laughs> we're taping ourselves. We, we think about episode. Is this, is, this is not a webinar then. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm in my 50s. So I'm trying to understand <laughs> what technology we're doing. We we think about what kinds of episode topics would be relevant and um, helpful. And we people. and we we dismiss the Dukes of Hazard trivia game right at the beginning. <laughs> to be clear, I was not allowed to well, watch it. By the okay. way, <laughs> as as two people that are basically in their 50s, <laughs> I'm almost there. You know, the Dukes of Hazard is is a fraught topic for me. Indeed. Fair enough. Not allowed to watch it. And do you know why? Not because of content, because it was bad art, basically. <laughs> Father didn't want us to watch it, that show because he thought it was bad art. I'm just saying we missed out. So. <laughs> anyway, point being that when we sit around and think about episode topics, one of the things that, um, you know, we came up with is cultural philanthropy. And I started out with the idea of, Helping people survive a poor culture of philanthropy. Yeah. I, I wrote how to survive a poor culture of philanthropy. And the reason that I was inspired to do this, to be honest, is that I recently had a conversation with a university president who um, 
reminded me of several presidents I've known who basically told me he did not see the point in advancement, which is really, it's just a heartbreaking thing to hear the leader of an organization say because of, as as great presidents have said before, advancement really um, can take the university where it wants to go in a way that tuition can't, right? Or shouldn't. Students shouldn't be paying for bringing the university's programs to the next level. Donors should be doing that. Anyway, point being, I was thinking about how to tell people to survive poor cultural philanthropy. And then the reason that I kind of revised that topic is I thought the way to survive that is to leave because you should never work for people, frankly, who denigrate your profession or feel as though they're, if you're working in an environment where there is at the very top of the organization, no vision for what philanthropy can do to move the institution forward, you need to really think about whether you should be building your career there. Yeah, I mean, you're a, a leader who doesn't believe in philanthropy is not going to invest the resources needed to be successful there. No. So I, I completely agree with you. And I think, you know, I mean, universities have, and, and other nonprofits beyond universities, but universities have, you know, unique mission and lots of revenue sources. We're only one of those, but we're an important one of those sources. Yeah. You know, there's tuition, there's other federal research, there's other kinds of revenues you can get. But we create the margin of excellence at institutions, especially in places where, like where I am now. We create the margin of excellence between being good or versus being really great. Yeah, you know? exactly. And, you know, getting to know several current and I know at least a handful of future Nobel Prize winners, it's the funding that we are helping them you know, pro provide from extraordinarily generous donors. We're just, we're just the liaisons in this, in this interesting dynamic, but we're helping them get the funding they need to be able to, to achieve their vision, which is changing lives. And, and it's extraordinary. Yeah. And for me, the, the, you know, the most palpable was the, the, the financial aid that we raise that provides opportunities for students who otherwise wouldn't be able to go to college is so meaningful for what we do. And if you have a, a leader who doesn't believe in that, it's hard to understand um, how you can be successful there. But I do think, I think there are ways to educate leaders, and I think there are ways to use data and benchmarking analysis with other institutions to really yeah. provide that context as to why our, our work is so meaningful and can have a material impact on virtually every nonprofit, but especially um, you know colleges and universities around the country. I... I'm sitting here remembering something that happened about a year ago where I think I texted you, Dave. Um, I was, I came across a press release about Northwestern where you work. I don't know if you know this. You work at Northwestern. I do. <laughs> um, but I, I came across this press release that was about a researcher there who was developing a technique to help regenerate neurological tissue. Sam Stoop, yeah. It was so um I texted you about how how much of an impact your campaign made, but I texted 
all of my cousins. I texted all, well, not all, there's a million of them, but I texted many of my cousins. I texted my siblings. And the reason I did is that my mother had MS. And if that technology had existed years ago, that would have saved her life, right? So I feel like this is not stuff that is about, you know, schmoozing. This is about curing disease. This is about healing the environment. This is about think discovery that we don't even know kind of where it leads. There's no, there's nothing more meaningful than working with a donor who wants to change the world yes. and finding a connection with the researcher who can change the world. Yeah. And Sam and many others at Northwestern are doing that. And he's one of the people who um, I was with him traveling in Europe when I got your text and he, the, the, his, oh my gosh, our, really? His you were with him? Yeah, his article in the science in science came out, and it was about uh, his ability to to regenerate tissue for people with spinal cord injuries. And I saw him a few days ago um, again. We and he's a wonderful human. His wife is a friend of mine as well. They both work at Northwestern and both alumni, and you know work there. Extraordinary, and getting to know people who are doing such incredible work like it it brings to life to me like it it makes real what we're doing in the most palpable way. And, you know, anytime I can support people who are doing that kind of work, I feel so good about what I'm doing. And I'm not always successful. No, research isn't always successful. Yeah. Right. But, but it's, it's amazing. It's an amazing opportunity to, to see the, your work, um, and the work of your colleagues. And more importantly, um, in terms of the fundraising team that I work with, help bring wonderful things to life. That right. will change lives on the planet forever. Uh, right. And, and there is, businesses are phenomenal, but there, there isn't a business model for constant failure prior to <laughs> success, right? <laughs> you need, you need universities to ideate and test a million things and find solutions to problems that are considered unsolvable. That's right. That's right. So uh, yeah, we're fortunate and it's, you know, for those who are able to work with such incredible, incredible talent, it it really makes the work you're doing that much more meaningful. Um, but even when, even when you know maybe your work is maybe more prosaic, or it's still really important. Oh, you know, yeah. A lot of the work I do is not around you know future <laughs> Nobel Prize winners, right? Uh, you know, and so most of frankly, most of that fundraising is done at a higher level than me. But it's like, but but the work we're doing is always meaningful, and you never know. What gifts you're raising will yield, you know, extraordinary consequences on the, in a positive way on the back end. Think about how much it matters to families to have the ability to send their child to college. Um, especially families where, you know, there isn't a history of college education. There's a first generation student who's going and, uh, you know, they need the help and, the amount of benefit that that can bring back to their communities and their families is extraordinary. It, yeah, it lifts, it lifts the individual, the family, yep, the, the larger family, the community in an incredible way. So I think that's why most of us do this. Um, but I, I, I think to get to the core of this, um, you got to find places that are going to support you. You got to help educate yeah. your your academic partners and the leaders of the organization about why it is you do what you do. How it is you do what you do? What are the key metrics that understand success so that you can be better and yeah. you can raise more money to help the, the institution achieve its mission? 
you do noble work. And if people don't recognize that, impress it upon them. And if they still don't recognize that, find somewhere where it will be recognized because truly people deserve to be honored for that noble work. I totally agree. Well, this has been a sermon. (laughs) (laughs) Amen. Um, Thank you so much for tuning into Talking Shop. And um, we look forward to talking to you next time.